Hi, I'm Mike Livermore, and with me today is Alex Kaiko Gaich, uh, who's a professor in the Group for Neural Theory at the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris. And today we're going to be discussing brains, intelligence, and other themes of the ICA4. Thanks so much for joining me, Alex. Thanks very much. Um, should be a fun conversation. So maybe just to get us started, um, you can uh, tell us a little bit about what drew you to the field of neuroscience uh, in general as, a, as, a, as an object of inquiry and something you wanted to devote your, your research time to. Um, yeah, it's a, thanks. That's a good question. Um, actually, so I came from applied math. Um, mm -hmm. My PhD and my bachelor's are in applied math. Um, and when I was uh, starting my dissertation, I, I really didn't have much interest in neuroscience or in biology, but the, mm. um, the, uh, the professor with whom I was um, uh, doing my research um, worked in uh, mathematics applied to neuroscience. And mm. um, I just started to become increasingly interested um, as I was essentially kind of uh, forced to read papers in neuroscience. Mm. Um, I found it very difficult moving from such a formal, um, you know, mathematics, everything is very precise uh, and very um, defined to such a uh, messy and empirical science, um, mm -hmm. neuroscience, and, not, and also a very new science and one that's, um, that has the influence of many different disciplines um, because um, there's still so much we don't know about the brain. Um, and, uh, and so that was actually a very difficult um, transition, uh, but... Um, so I guess I'm, it's some kind of like academic peer pressure is how I actually got interested in neuroscience. Um, uh, before then, I had I had no interest. I was just interested in math, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And that was actually something that struck me in um, some of the work uh, that you that you that you've done is is the connection between um, what I think of as pretty mathy stuff and 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 then the empirics to neuroscience. So what I'm thinking of is just again just something that struck me personally is. The paper where you construct this, um, what I believe is called a neural activity space, um, which is a kind of geometry, and then you, you you then use that geometry or empirically kind of get uh, kind of parameterize the geometry, I guess, and then you use that to draw inferences about what kind of what's going on in the brain. And so, one I was just curious: is that something that was is a is a typical technique in the area where you're using a pretty kind of you know, high-level abstract mathematical construct t to get at uh, understanding the brain, or is that kind of the, uh, the sub-discipline that you're drawn to because of your um, because of your math background? Yeah, so it's um, it's the latter. So it's um, kind of a a sub-discipline within, uh, say, systems neuroscience of analyzing mm -hmm. um, recordings of um, populations of neurons. Um, so there, there are many techniques that are more classic for analyzing um, single neurons, uh, but it then actually the um, collective activity of neurons is very important um, in determining um, uh, behavior. Uh, and so there's kind of been a push in systems neuroscience recently, at least in the kind of sub-discipline that I'm in, as you say, um, towards uh, trying to understand uh, uh, using these kind of manifold analyses or these uh, geometrical strategies, as you said, um, to, um, to understand, uh, how the, um, like activity of neurons in this high dimensional space, um, uh, correlates to, uh, the task that the animal is performing. Um, and from that you can hopefully draw specific, uh, inferences about the computations that are involved. Yeah. it's really interesting. How long has that line of research been going on for? Oh, how long? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, not that oh, I'm going to, I can't give a very good I, I'm answer. Just thinking, but is, is it, is it decades or, or years, I guess would be the kind of order of magnitude type question. Um, the earliest paper I can remember to use this kind of technique was like in 2000. Okay. So um, quite yeah. fairly recent, but it really has, yeah, but that, uh, it really has, um, uh, kind of nonlinearly increased, like a mm -hmm. uh, uh, super linear exploded recently um, mm. uh, from from the very early beginning. That's interesting. And is that is that is that increase due to like technology? Like we're, yeah. we're able to kind of yeah yeah absolutely absolutely. So I think uh, the increases. Um, I mean, there's now um, uh, papers where they can record up to like ten thousand neurons in um, in a part of the brain 
uh, in mouse. Um, and uh, in some animals, like in um, these larval zebrafish, you can, uh, you can get basically every neuron um, in the brain. And so this is a, um, a giant explosion of data, um, and for that we need advanced um, kind of uh, techniques to analyze that data, uh, and that's kind of has what is, uh, using those techniques is what has led to this type of uh, analysis. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, because just, you know, for folks who maybe aren't familiar with this, we talk about a high-dimensional space. The, the idea here is that you have all of these neurons that are kind of, if they're not all interacting with each other, uh, and again, correct me if I'm just totally off base, but the way I would just initially think of this is all you have 10,000 neurons, and they're not just interacting with their neighbors. They're interacting over distances. So in theory, like every neuron could be interacting with every other neuron, and that is just the amount of complexity in such a, in a space like that is just absolutely staggering. Yeah, it's a very, yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, there's, there are, um, it depends on the brain region, but there are sometimes like specific um, um, patterns of connectivity between neurons. Mm -hmm. um, but then because it's biology, there's always a lot of noise on top of that or, or variability, I should say, not necessarily noise. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it, it's a very yeah. It's a very complex system. So the, the type the type of analyses that I'm uh, using kind of just uh, looks only at the activity and doesn't um, focus on the connections um, between the neurons. Yeah. Mm, okay, that's interesting. So one of the questions that again just kind of popped into my mind as I was going through to some of your work was whether it kind of makes sense at all to <clears throat> to apply this kind of modeling to artificial neural networks or whether um, that's just a kind of a category mistake in a sense. Like, are AI, are artificial neural networks kind of too simple, or do they lack the kind of structure that would make the analyses that you're doing interesting, or or is there a, a, a kind of an analogy between the two fields? It's so interesting that you ask this question um, because um, recently there there have been people, um, computational neuroscientists, um, to my knowledge, uh, um, although there may, may be people from other fields as well, um, who have been interested in kind of like opening the black box um, of artificial networks using exactly these methods. Um, and it's essentially because they're interested in what we can really gain um, from these, as you said er uh, earlier on, these very abstract mathematical uh, methods. What can you really uh, gain about how the system works? And so um, artificial neural networks um, are a very good case study in that um, for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, because um, they can actually perform tasks. So um, a lot of um, modeling and computational um, neuroscience more historically has been trying to like match patterns of um, connectivity uh, that you observe empirically in the brain, but don't necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily able to perform um, uh, like uh, complicated tasks with a, a few exceptions. Um, whereas this is the opposite where you, you train a model to be able to do say um, object recognition uh, but you don't really know how it works because you didn't, um, you know, create the connectivity that leads to that task. And then you use these types of techniques um, um, after the fact um, to try to figure out how that works. Um, yeah. uh, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And 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 this really is, just, I think, some other work that that you've done. Um, and just to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly, so in the kind of classic neuroscience context. We've, you know, we're not looking at the full, like a mouse can do something, obviously. Mice can do lots of things. They can navigate a maze or whatever, but we're not actually, at, the, at least at the stage we're in right now, we don't try to understand the mouse brain as it's navigating a maze. Like that's just, there's just too much going on. And so we parse it into kind of subdomains of the brain and then try to understand those subdomains. But they'll, but even if the mouse is navigating the, the maze at the time, we're not sure how what's going on in that particular area relates to the overall task. Whereas with an artificial neural network, we know that the task is, we know exactly what the task that was trained to, and therefore there's like a relationship between the task and the, uh, the substrate that we're looking at that we don't necessarily have in animal models or in other kind of like real live biological neuroscience. Yeah, I mean, there are there are specific regions that are thought uh, to be more involved, um, like the hippocampus, for example, is is very involved in um, sense of uh, place, um, uh, spatial uh, memory, um, and so that's the area that you would look for a mouse um, navigating a maze. Um, but 
I think you're, but the larger point is right that um, basically with an artificial neural network, it's um, in some sense uh, more constrained because we, we know that it's being optimized to solve this particular task and we know the activity of every element, um, every node in the network, and we know the connection strength. Um, and so, you know, if we can't understand what it's doing using these types of methods, then it's, it's kind of a seems like bad news for neuroscience, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And I think, that, and again, I, this perhaps relates to other um, work that you've done on that. So, so, so you're, I don't know if you, if, if in neuroscience you have to pick a favorite brain region, uh, if that's kind of a, a task that, that one has to do, but it seems like if you had to choose, you would choose a cerebellum, or at least that's what you've been doing a bunch of research on. And um, and then what I take some of some of your work to have, uh, focused on is the role that the cerebellum plays in processes that we typically associate with other brain regions, specifically the prefrontal cortex and higher order processes like cognition. And so one of the things that's interesting about the the artificial neural network context is it just has an end, right? We just know where the four corners of the artificial neural network are. It just doesn't extend out anywhere. It just ends. And if you're looking at the hippocampus or you're looking at the prefrontal cortex, you know that it's embedded within a much bigger system. And so you can draw, you know, you can draw a boundary around it, but there's information going out, there's information coming in, and that, you know, that's gonna that's gonna render it difficult to understand exactly what's going on in the system compared to maybe things that are happening outside the system. Yeah. Um yeah, so, so yeah, the, cere- the cerebellum would be, I guess, the, the region that I focus on. And I'm very interested um, in this uh, idea of kind of, I mean, the brain is a very modular structure, but of um, breaking the uh, modularities that we've classically defined um, uh, in order to understand how different regions um, interact with each other um, rather than looking at each one um, in isolation. So I guess the analogy would be like if you, um, if you had a, a big um, recurrent neural network um, uh, that you trained um, to do some uh, specific task, uh, and then you only look at a subset um, of those neurons. You do some kind of clustering, and you say, "Well, this subset of neurons seems to be um, more um, uh, engaged with this component of the task." But you may be maybe missing how those two um, regions are um, communicating with each other. And this is something that also I mean, it's kind of going back to the idea of like technological determinism that you that you asked about um, about about using these types of methods and whether that was related to an inc- like advances in technology. Um, I think this is also kind of uh, similar here. Um, uh, there's now the ability to record from multiple different brain regions at once, and then you know this uh, increase in um, uh, advanced uh, kind of data analysis tools. Uh, again, very linked to um, new research in artificial intelligence um, enables us to make sense of that data. Hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about the, the the relationship of kind of the uh, the way research in neuroscience has played out over the past several decades, and this this question of kind of brain areas and um, how we kind of go about doing research in the area. And one question that struck me is whether the um, so so you, you so you mentioned technology as a driving force in in kind of determining or in affecting how research plays out. There's also, I think, I, or I, I wonder whether there's a, something going on with respect to kind of parsimony um, or just figuring out how to go about the business of understanding an incredibly complex object and, um, and to say, look, well, we, we think we can see some modularity is the term you use here. And that allows us just to structure our research because otherwise, you know, we're trying to study everything simultaneously and we're just not going to have any uh, success doing that. And so just as an intellectual framework to try to kind of divide, literally divide up the brain into different areas that we can then try to learn something about. Um, So I wonder if that also has played a role and that there's a kind of a natural back and forth between drilling down into or kind of modularizing at some level, uh, at some resolution, understanding with that resolution and then shifting the resolution to either a higher or lower level to, to gain understanding. Um, yeah, so it, I mean, it's kind of like, this is how science works, right? You, you have a complex problem and you break it up uh, into simpler problems um, and then you make some progress there and then kind of like, you know, 
Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, mm -hmm. you see how um, that simplified model doesn't fit your data, and then you try to understand um, how making it a, you know, a parsimony, as you say, a little bit more complex, um, or trying to understand a little bit like the interactions between um, a couple pairs of regions can, um, can explain that data, and then, and then you keep <laughs> continuing, and hopefully that, that's going to lead to understanding the brain. Right, just kind of keep at it. And I mean, are you, are you skeptical that we're gonna that, that we're gonna get there? To I mean, it seems like we know more than we did twenty years ago. I don't know. That's a complete outsider's perspective. It might be that we feel like we know less than we did twenty years ago. Um, as someone in the field, does it does it feel like there's like this is an area where progress is getting made um, over time and it's progressive, or is it kind of just flailing around and we're not making we're not actually making any progress? No, I think. I mean, I think. Prog I think progress is being made, but it, it feels like we're like neuroscience is still at such an early stage that there are some really big pieces missing. Um, and I think, um, I think the advent of um, of AI uh, of neural networks specifically, um, and realizing that we don't understand those, but they can do some really complex things better than you know other um, other models that we could develop. That's. I mean. I, that's kind of troubling to um, to me and to you know, other um, uh, colleagues of mine, um, uh, and so maybe this is uh, this is why there's this kind of feeling that we need to understand how these models work, or maybe huh. there's no hope to understand how the brain works. Huh. So the so the part that that is the troubling part is that is that the systems in AI are. Is it that they're that we just don't understand them? Is it that they can perform these tasks better than humans, or is it they're simpler? We should be able to understand them in some ways, cause, either because they're simpler or because we built them, and therefore, it is it is a kind of odd that yeah. um, that we don't know what's going on. It's a combination. So it's the fact that um, it's the fact that uh, we haven't been able to um, to build as effective um, uh, systems to perform these tasks as like neural networks. Um, and these very uh, successful algorithms, uh, we cannot uh, fully understand um, with the, uh, even, even though we know more about these algorithms than we know about a brain. Uh, so the, you know, the activity at every point in time and the connection weights at every point in time um, and how the learning is being done, you know, um, uh, the loss function. Um, we still don't uh, really kind of understand in an intuitive way that's very satisfying a lot of the time. Although I have, you know, I have colleagues who are... Um, who are working on on this uh, very problem even here at NOS. You know, it's, it's it, in a way, it's like a neuroscientist dream, right? An artificial yeah, neural network, exactly. because you, you know, it, it, you have the fMRI is, I, I think, still the tool of choice for many of these studies. I mean, at least in humans and in, in animals, you can do um, more invasive stuff. But it, the the loss of information is just incredible, and so um, so in a way, it's kind of like you can't blame the the lack of information. Um, with an artificial neural network, because we have all of the information, it's just that our theory or something is going. You know, we don't. We that's what we don't have. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, this kind of just got me while we're kind of talking about the data acquisition, right? It's kind of getting into the brain is such a is such a hard thing, and getting getting the information out. Um, but nevertheless, the fMRI and related tools have just been. I mean, that's been a, a huge. Uh, change in, in, in neuroscience and just allowed us to do research in, in, in explosively new ways. Um, you know, and I've heard folks over the years compare it to kind of other major abilities to engage in detection in other sciences, like the microscope or the telescope or something like that. And I was curious your thoughts on whether, um, you know, there have been, like, we're, what, in the field of neuroscience at this point, you know, given the growth and the ability to actually detect and, and observe the object of study, have there been kind of equivalent insights into the functioning of the brain in the way that, you know, the microscope or the telescope just opened up new worlds and then immediately you started to see new theories about how the world worked? Um, so I work in um, systems neuroscience, so not fMRI, but using, as you say, more invasive um, tools with animals. Um, and so I can't speak for fMRI, um, but um, I mean the ability to record from multiple neurons at the same time in um, in living tissue in living animals that are 
performing tasks while mm -hmm. the acquisition is being done. Um, uh, that has been um, quite transformative. But then I think what um, I don't I don't know. So like maybe I'm too young in the in the field um, uh, to to really be able to say like I believe we're like we're making like from progress or like this is this is the the, um, the breakthrough that happened 20 years ago um, but I, I have this feeling that that mostly what's done is like deconstructing um, ideas that um, had been uh, had been um, assumed or like proposed um, previously that had lasted for a long time um, but I, I don't I still really just get the feeling that neuroscience is still kind of like grappling for the um, the, the first like really big foundational um, uh, uh, way to understand the I don't know the brain writ large. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously a, uh, as you said, it's a really young field, and I mean, is it does that make it a in a, in a sense that the fact that it's a little bit so if, say let's say it's, this is the way things are, and it's a little bit kind of I don't know pre theoretical. There's a lot of theories, but there's there's not really ones that. Yeah. Um, have kind of taken over and allowed for a research program. I mean, just compared to physics or some or, or genetics um, in biology, where you know it's kind of before we understand uh, or evolutionary theory before we understand genes. We have natural selection. We kind of have a sense of what's going on. We don't really know the mechanism. Are we pre-natural selection? Are we pre you know a genetic understanding? Like you know, is that an exciting time or is that a frustrating time? Do you, do you think to be in that kind of before the theoretical paradigm is settled? I, I personally find it very exciting um, because it means that um, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of like or turnover of ideas um, in the field um, and there's a lot of um, integration of different techniques from other fields. So um, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly learning new things. I mean, in um, systems neuroscience, like a, a paper from the 50s is, is ancient. And I remember when I was doing my... Um, when I was doing my <laughs> PhD and I, I, I was presenting my um, thesis um, and uh, yeah, it was, so I was um, going back to like maybe the seventies uh, in my presentations. And mm -hmm. then, and then my, my friend who was working in mathematical physics was presenting work from Euler in like the 1700s, you know, like it's, it really made me realize how, how different these fields are, um, yeah. how different neurosciences um, specifically from other kind of uh, computational sciences. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, now, of course, so, so it's kind of that's a double-edged sword for a researcher because, on the one hand, um, they create maybe there's a, an opportunity to have a you know a, a, a kind of a, a big contribution in the field, but on the other hand, if everybody's work becomes irrelevant if within 15 or 20 years, you really have to you have to keep on putting out work if you want to stay in the game. Yeah, I mean, but it's not really it's not like um, any one group's work is irrelevant, right? It's like it's like you're all contributing to this open discussion. Um, and, and people's, I mean, like my, my work has certainly, um, changed in scope or changed in ideas, um, uh, throughout the course of my career, my career. Um, yeah. Um, Hey, I think there's actually lots of interesting things to think about in, in this space, like just how, t how technology, things like communication technology and how we do, um, how we do scientific communication and how scientists engage in collaborations allows for you know kind of a faster pace of innovation in, in, in a way that um, maybe didn't exist in the past as well but but just to kind of maybe return to uh, what we were talking about just a, a, a minute or two ago on you know this kind of research that compare research that takes almost a neuroscientific perspective on artificial neural networks um, and how that kind of you know the, the, the conversations in those two fields work back and forth one of the things, and again, this is kind of a very general question, is, you know, obviously there's a, the history is that artificial neural networks at some very, very high level of abstraction were um, um, uh, inspired by the way that the brain works at least a little bit. But obviously they're very, very different in the sense that it's a, quite a simple mathematical object, um, an artificial neural network compared to like that physical neural, like a neuron, quote unquote neuron in a artificial neural network is a very, very simple thing compared to a biological neuron, which there are lots of different kinds of neurons and, and so on. So 
one question I, I had is how much of the insights uh, that one could glean from artificial neural networks, even if we could come to understand them, how much of that do you think would carry over in the sense, so I guess this is a question that it's kind of substrate neutral, like how much of the biological complexity and um, just what's going on in the brain is actually important for how the brain functions um, compared to, you know, yeah, we can actually represent it in a fairly simple way um, that captures a lot of um, computationally what's going on in the brain. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, there, so there are certainly some, um, yeah, so, I mean, single nodes in artificial neural networks are very simple. Um, there are some ways that you can get around this. Um, for example, like a, neurons are, are much more um, morphologically complex, so they have um, dendrites, uh, which um, uh, can be nonlinearly um, integrating, um, and you can kind of uh, break those apart as different nodes. So there's a like a classic yeah. paper called um, oh what is it called? The pyramidal cell is a um, two layer neural network, I think. So that so then it's replacing a single neuron by a two layer neural network. So yeah. um, so there are some ways to get around some of the the, the simplicities because um, yeah. then that so would still be reducible to like a neural network. Right. Um, so let me just make sure I understand. So this is so you model essentially a single biological neuron as a, a using a neural network as a model of a single neuron basically yeah so this paper was saying you can you can think of like this this um complex uh neuron as actually like a um a two-layer neural network meaning that it can perform like a single a single um neuron because of the mm -hmm. structure of um the dendrites uh can perform the kind of computations that a that a, a simple neural network can perform mm -hmm. um and then if you assume that that's, like, implemented in the, the dendrites of every pyramidal cell in the neocortex, then that's, like, a much larger um, potential processing power of the brain. Um, but I think that still doesn't really – that's kind of a cop-out answer because um, that's just, like, the one example that I know where you can kind of reduce it to that same neural network. And I think, um, yeah, really there's uh, – it's quite likely that there's, um, uh, there's a, a lot more – um, or maybe the way that, so neural networks are really just an, a metaphor, I guess, for how the brain works, um, mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, no, I, a model metaphor, right? And and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. It's so so so. Let's just you know thinking about the, this two stage neural network where you know you basically have lots of little, or tons, many 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 uh, mini neural networks that are then connected to each other in a in a bigger network. It seems that what would be going on there in part is there would be some lossiness of the information exchanged at that kind of second tier up, the, the network of networks, basically. And that mm -hmm. there would be, that that would bottleneck, that that would serve as a bottleneck, because otherwise it wouldn't be interesting. Then it would literally just be one interconnected network, and then that structure, the two-tier structure, wouldn't be doing anything. So it seemed like what it would inherently have to be doing is saying, okay, we're going to be performing computations at the neural neuron level, which is itself a network, and then we're going to be feeding information across these, these neuron mini, net, mini neural networks. And I guess the question is, is like, does that matter? The fact that you've got this lossiness, is that um, necessarily a bad thing for the functioning of the network? Would it, is it kind of inherently the case that a, a more fully interconnected network, instead of saying 10 you know, 10 neuron networks that are then connected into a thousand, you know, um, pieces, you know, take each piece as 10 and then you take 10, a thousand pieces. Is it necessarily that you can perform better computations with just 10,000 neurons? Or does that kind of structure where you have the two tiers and, and perhaps a, a, a loss of information across the, um, a, you know, when the, at the kind of neuron to neuron level, can that give you any any benefit, essentially, or is that just a, kind of a biological necessity that we've had to deal with in our in our brains and have figured workarounds for? Well, so it, it, the way that you phrase this question makes it seem that that you're thinking of um, of any information loss as being bad, 
But I would argue that information loss is actually um, good if it's the right kind of information loss. I mean, the, the function of the, of the brain or of um, different um, networks of neurons um, is to, uh, to, to make computations on information, not to faithfully transmit information. Otherwise, we would just, you know, transmit visual information from the eye all the way to the hand. I mean, what would be the point of that? Um, right? So, like, the, in some ways, it's actually what the what neural networks need to do is um, find a way to, uh, like, discard useless information and to combine uh, useful information together um, in a way that's more um, easily accessible to, to downstream regions in a way that can um, guide behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's kind of, you know, what's important is as much what we don't pay attention to is what we attend to because we don't pay attention to way more information than we pay attention to right we throw away a lot of information yeah and also how you how you transform that information i guess is, uh, is mm-hmm. also what i want to say um and and those those computations you know like discarding irrelevant information and transforming relevant information um mm-hmm. those are going to be completely in uh, you know that's that's all going to be in the connectivity i think right and is this happening at in, in human brains so we have some of this happening at the, the neural level where we, if we think of each neuron as a little mini computer, essentially making its own computations and then passing information to other neurons. And then does this also happen at the level of, of brain regions where, we're, where the information is being kind of um, collected as a higher order representation and then passed between regions um, for whatever reason that seemed like... I read somewhere that that was what was going on. Uh, it's a very naive understanding of, of what's happening. Or is that, or or is the region level really just a, um, I don't know, like a, a guide for research? And, and it's not actually nothing biologically is happening there. Where the brain isn't actually collecting information at the level of regions and, and passing it. Up, um, no, that well, that over. that's that's definitely um, a, a view um, of of how. Um, information is uh, processed in the brain. Um, a compelling one, I think. Um, uh, again, it's like neuroscience is so um, um, early that it's hard to say anything really concrete of how the brain actually works. Um, but I'll give you a, a concrete example, which is in the visual system, um, where you have uh, visual information to the retina, which is the back of the eye. That's uh, then propagated to the um, lateral geniculate nucleus and then to different parts of the neocortex, so the different parts of the visual neocortex. So there's different um, stages, basically. So, like, go to um, V1, which is primary visual cortex, and then that projects to, um, like, higher level, um, like, increasingly higher and more sophisticated levels of um, visual processing, so it is thought. Um, and so there's um, uh, classic work um, so like that uh, argues um, that this is basically trying to um, how do I describe this? Trying to uh, make the representations of different um, objects more distinguishable from each other. So the mm-hmm. idea is that all the information you get about the visual world, right? All of the every everything that you receive is already there in the retinas, right? You have all it has the to be. Inf- exactly. It has to be because it's like a one-way system from the retina to the you know through the optic nerve. Um, so then why would you have all of these visual regions that respond to different um, visual stimuli? Um, and so uh, one of the answers that I find compelling that's been proposed um, is that uh, there's um, higher and higher order um, feature extraction that's trying to uh, basically uh, go from a, a representation at the level of the retina where, where um, it's hard to be able to um, disentangle uh, the representation um, of two different objects, let's say like a, a mug and a basketball, um, mm-hmm. and at the uh, higher order areas, then you would be able to have like a single neuron that can respond to a mug and a single neuron that responds to a basketball. I'm not sure why I chose those examples. <laughs> why not? They're, they're, they're good examples. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> different, but not so different in, in a <laughs> sense, right? About the same size in a way, right? Yeah, um, yeah and you know, one of the things... Uh, Again, as we've been t- comparing brains and artificial neural networks, as, as you're describing, um, you know, this process of, of p- pumping information through the brain, um, losing some of the information along the way because you don't need it, 
uh, extracting features, transforming the information into kind of higher level representations and the like. Um, one question that comes to mind as we, again, make this comparison is how much of this process was kind of evol evolutionary, I mean, obviously it was all evolutionarily driven, but um, all computational agents in the biological world, right, starting from, you know, uh, worms up through mammals, you know, have a, a very, uh, you know, they, they operated under a very difficult trade-off, right, which is that brains are very uh, calorically intensive, right, and so if you're going to be processing information using your, your, your brain, you have to, that means you have to collect more calories in, in the environment, and so every calculation in some ways has to meet this trade-off of being worth it from an evolutionary perspective. And so it would make sense then to throw away a lot of information and to do as few calculations in a sense um, as possible to achieve your goal of, you know, food, finding food and reproduction and reproducing, right? Whereas we don't, you know, artificial neural networks don't face that same kind of constraint. Um, you know, we can, we can just throw as much, essentially, arbitrary amounts of energy uh, through, a, um, through a computer. Um, and, and, you know, so the, the kind of value per calculation can be so much lower for an artificial neural network than for a, a bio. You have to carry the thing around in your head. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, 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 then I, so then I guess the, the question is, how much of what we see in biology um, in terms of uh, the kind of efficiency that we get from throwing away this information and generating higher level representations and the like, how much of that is due to the need to preserve calories and therefore isn't really necessarily um, a design feature that we would want to instantiate in artificial neural networks because they don't operate under that same constraint versus it's actually something about how to do um, calculations, how, how to understand come to understand an environment or operate in an environment effectively that, um, that is going to be generic and, and isn't um, kind of due to this calorie trade-off, calorie computation trade-off that, that biological um, neural networks faced. Um, yes, uh, that's um, yes, good question. Um, so, um, I, so many thoughts here. Um, I do think it's really important to think about the the brain as um, as embodied and the the, the um, energy constraints that it has. Um, I, th I think, um, yeah, I think so. But but getting back to the idea of throwing away information, um, it's not necessarily uh, just to for um, for energy efficiency. Um, actually, I think that. Uh, the throwing away of information. What I what I mean by this is that there's a lot of variability that you just don't care about necessarily mm -hmm. um, to solve a task. Uh, and so to, to take an example, let's say just keep uh, keep on going with object recognition, and let's say um, a penny. Yeah. Um, so if you look at a penny um, uh, straight on, you'll see a circle, and if you look at it, um, rotate it nine degrees, you'll see like a flat edge. And so this is a source of variability that you want to be able to extract away. In the system, um, that's the source of information, um, which is information because the image that you see when you're looking at a penny is going to depend on the orientation. But for the purpose of object recognition, that's information you don't care about. You don't care about the viewing angle, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, uh, and and so I think uh, these things. I mean that that's an example where it is effectively already encoded into artificial neural networks because um, they perform object recognition uh, in a way that is that is able to um, to detect images uh, in um, you know many different uh, uh, orientations and um, different lighting conditions etc mm -hmm. um, so so actually I think this idea of um, discarding uh, information away is actually um, uh, crucial to performing tasks and is not just of, um, in order to uh, to make the system more energy efficient, um, but I but I agree though um, that energy efficiency is very important, uh, and that may be a very large distinction between how like wet brains you know and function versus artificial neural networks. Yeah. So just to take the penny example to kind of keep keep going with this, right? And the and, from, and the kind of 
how you represent it and how it relates to the amount of information you're calculating. And, and again, this distinction between kind of wet and, and, and artificial brains. Um, so, so pennies, uh, I look at pennies and, and I, you know, I just see pennies, right? Just, I don't make any distinction between the pennies that I see. Someone who's a coin collector, right? Who spends their life um, caring about the distinctions in the years and the this and the that and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. I don't know nothing about coin collecting, um, but presumably they look at a penny and they see they can distinguish lots of different kinds of pennies from each other, right? For me, it's all there's categories. It's just pennies and not pennies, and that's all there is to it. Um, the coin collector maybe sees and recognizes a thousand different kinds of pennies. Let's just say, and for in a sense, for me, it would not make sense to have um, as I was learning money when I was a little kid and learning the difference between pennies and dimes and quarters to kind of retain in, kind of information that wasn't useful for that one categorization that I was making, right? And so, and there's two reasons for that, right? One is exactly the thing that you were describing, that I want to be able to abstract away from like how I'm holding the penny in my hand um, or the viewing angle of the penny or the lighting situation or whatever else. And so I wanna be able to um, abstract away from those differences, but, um, it would have been perfect if, if I had an infinite amount of kind of memory. There's no reason I couldn't retain the kind of information that then would be useful to distinguish um, characteristics of pennies the ways that a coin collector can, right? That there's a, there's a kind of, a, again, almost a caloric trade-off or a space trade-off for me, whereas the artificial neural network can actually, there's not really a cost to it learning how to distinguish pennies from dimes and all different kinds of pennies from each other simultaneously. At least there's not an energy cost to that in the way that there would be an energy cost to me. So I'm wondering if maybe this doesn't make, I, I don't know if this observation is particularly interesting or useful, but it strikes me that that seems like a, a hard thing to, to figure out in the first instance is, you know, what are the types of um, variance, variability that you want to just essentially throw away or not pay attention to or abstract away from like lighting conditions or viewing angle versus the kinds of information variants that you want to retain because it could kind of maybe be useful later. You know, you can distinguish pennies from dimes with, you know, for a computer, a million examples. And if you get a billion examples, then you can distinguish, you know, a thousand different characteristics of different pennies from each other. And so, so in any case, I, I don't know if there's an ex ante way to do that um, or if you're just stuck um, you know, to, to just being task oriented about it, and, and it just depends on what your task is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess that's where the the flexibility um, of the brain is important, the, uh, and the um, plasticity um, ability to mm -hmm. to um, learn multiple tasks. I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah. Um. So, yeah, so, so just to go back to um, a point you raised, raised earlier, a, a term you raised earlier, which is this, um, this notion of embodied cognition, right, which we've been talking about a little bit, that this seems like a, a, a relatively new direction in, in neuroscience and maybe even in some related fields like uh, artificial intelligence. What, what, is the, what is this move and, 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 and why, is it, why has it been important for these, for these fields? Um. Well, so embodied cognition uh, is, is not new, um, but I don't know the history. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's an idea that kind of like goes in and out of um, uh, popularity, um, I think, as with many um, ideas um, uh, in, um, in neuroscience. Uh, mm -hmm. And recently, um, I mean, so I, I can say about my interest in embodied cognition, um, which is not because I don't, you know, I'm not really an expert in the, um, in the more classic um, ideas, uh, but I, I would say that the at this moment, um, systems neuroscience is really being kind of driven um, more and more towards uh, structured um, kind of uh, tasks, uh, and more and more towards um, uh, understanding the uh, uh, brain as a interacting with its environment. Um, and so, in that sense, I'm I'm very interested in the idea um, of uh, like uh, kind of. Uh, task relevant um, information and how that um, uh, is uh, represented in um, different areas that are more classically thought of as um, um, higher order um, kind of um, 
um, cognition or sensory areas. Hmm. So, th so this is interesting. So, so I, when I just look at the term embodied cognition, what, and think about biological, you know, brains versus artificial neural networks, it seems kind of obvious in some way that, um, that the, 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 biological brains are embodied, that they're, they're in bodies, literally, <laughs> and, uh, and that there's all kinds of interactions happening between um, the, the neural network, the brain that is the object of inquiry um, for neuroscience, and then, you know, a broader environment, whereas an artificial neural network uh, is disembodied in a sense. It's kind of, it's a very abstract, it has, you know, very, very clear boundaries around it, but um, and so in, in a sense, what I've always, part of what I've taken this, um, notion to be is that artificial neural networks, part of the reason that we can't move over certain boundaries or the research gets stalled in certain directions is because artificial neural networks are not embodied, they're disembodied. But it sounds like you're actually taking this, a, a, a kind of totally opposite way of thinking about this, which is that our ability to think about neural networks because we understand the tasks that they've been trained to, we actually understand how they're interacting with their environment in a more rigorous way than we understand the relationship between at least parts of the brain and their broader environment because in a biological system, there's so much richness and so much complexity in that relationship. Whereas in an artificial neural network, we have a much clearer understanding of essentially how a neural network is embodied via a task that it's been trained to. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, I really like what you just said because I was kind of, I was kind of vaguely thinking this um, while you were talking, like how a neural network is kind of embodied in whatever task it isn't trained to is what you said, right? Um, yeah. I think that's right. So I think it's, for my interest, I would say what seems to be relevant is, um, is more like how the, the system that is um, designed to do um, a particular task is obviously going to be constrained by those tasks. Um, and so that's true of a neural network that you're training to do object recognition plus, you know, whatever your example was, dimes versus pennies, plus also all different kinds of pennies that were um, uh, the, um, that, uh, over like the entire period of the history of the U.S. or something. Um, right. In the same way that um, any particular organism is going to be embodied in its particular environmental niche. Um, and so maybe really what we should be thinking about is uh, kind of the, the interaction between, um, between brains and their kind of natural environments, um, uh, as opposed to just kind of separating them and, and putting them, you know, under the, um, under the microscope, um, uh, uh, completely devoid of like the uh, ecological context. And that may, that may be a limitation of comparison between um, artificial neural networks um, and, um, and living systems, but there's also, you know, difficulties of comparison, uh, between different living systems from each other, between, um, mice, which is the organism that I study and, uh, humans, uh, 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 which is presumably what a lot of neuroscientists are really, really want to understand is the human brain. Um, in addition to other types of, you know, model systems. So I'm, so I, th I kind of think of, uh, the, um, of neural networks as another type of model system that can be helpful for us to understand the human brain um, uh, j because it's also like a, a complex system that um, is able to, through a you know ne uh, interconnected network, perform um, specific um, tasks. Uh, so understanding that will uh, hopefully uh, kind of give us uh, some idea in the same way that studying uh, like a fly or a mouse might help us understand some principles behind um, human um, cognition. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, and I like the idea of like, you know, alpha zero has a, has an environment the same way that a, a exactly. mouse or a bacteria does. It's just playing go or playing chess is the environment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And again, it's, it's stylized because in a way, what is the environment of a mouse I mean, it's just much more complex. It's not just one task. It's a, it's many, many, many different things that are happening um, that a mouse has to do. It's just it's it's a very open-ended environment, um, and so uh, you know, just that the simplification that you get between task and the ultimately the trained network um, 
at least potentially allows for some uh, for some insights that would be difficult to get in a biological system. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that's neat. So, um, so there's I, we're kind of you know have talked a little bit about um, some of these uh, analogies that we can think of between different um, you know different systems. You know, there's a biological system. We can think of of models for human brains and other biological systems. We can think of them in artificial systems. One of the things that struck me in, a, in another paper that you, were, that you, that you sent over was um, an analogy that you drew. It was, a, it was a small, I don't know if it was, you, you considered it a throwaway line or a, a um, you know, how, how much is, is a genuine area of interest for you. But, so, so this is, a, you're talking about in the paper that trade-off between information and consensus. And you're talking in the papers discussing research on this question in the context of um, brains and um, the, the encoding of sensory information and passing sensory information to other decision-making areas of the brain. Um, but you identify or you discuss this work that, you know, basically finds that you don't always want to efficiently code uh, sensory information um, because because there can be a trade-off here in terms of decision-making. Maybe explain that a little bit, and then I'll uh, talk about this analogy that you introduced. Um, yes, yeah, so this is a paper that came out recently in Nature Neuroscience um, uh, by Valente and colleagues that I uh, wrote um, uh, with, a, with an, a colleague of mine, um, uh, an opinion piece on just a two-pager. Um, and um, the, the, to put a long story short, they basically found that um, the way that uh, information was encoded uh, in in these uh, part of the neocortex, the neocortex um, of mice that perform some particular um, tasks going through like a T maze, um, didn't appear to be that uh, that activity didn't appear to be structured in the way you would expect um, if you thought it was just uh, encoding uh, sensory information um, in the most efficient way possible. Um, uh, uh, in the sense of um, encoding exactly what was happening um, in the um, uh, uh, in terms of the like the task variables, um, and so the authors authors have a, a nice um, argument um, uh, that it's actually um, because the uh, those regions are more involved um, in the behavior um, than in just purely encoding um, the sensory variables. Uh, so I, what I really liked about this is that there's like this, it's kind of what I was saying about this shift in uh, recent years um, in systems neuroscience from the idea that, say, the visual cortex exactly um, represents um, uh, all of the, um, you know, the, every, all the uh, uh, visual stimuli that you observe every, um, uh, every like, you know, uh, the color of like every pixel, if you had a, you know, a, a picture in front of you, um, to actually extracting useful information from that image in order to use it for a task. Mm-hmm. Right. So this, again, this is kind of task relationship. Yeah. And yeah. so, so one of the, um, one of the analogies that you draw in that, in that paper is a kind of a question that you ask is, is this a more general trade-off um, between the information that's getting passed forward, and here you're talking, another kind of element of this paper is that is consensus, is the kind of amount of noise versus agreement. That's how I took it to be at the neurological level. And the more agreement there is, the easier it is to pass that information forward to it for decision making purposes. Mm-hmm. So was that is that was that is yeah. that a fair reading? Yeah. So then, and the analogy you kind of make was with respect to um, societies, right? Is that is there a more general trade off between information and consensus in what you describe as collective decision making, which seems like another model. Like we have brains, we have artificial neural networks, and we can. And it, what I thought was interesting is those as examples of collective decision making. Um, I don't know computers or something. I don't know what the right word is for that, but a thing that does collective decision making, um, in the same way that a jury does collective decision making. I guess I take it the analogy is, or a society um, has collective decision making. And so I thought that analogy of the of the brain to as is as engaged in collective decision making. I just found that striking and, and very interesting. And I was curious whether that was a widespread analogy in the field. Um, as just you know, really, what you have is is just lots of little things that then ultimately add up to some kind of collective decision that's made about you know many things go left, go right in a maze. 
um, eat you know cereal or eggs for breakfast, whatever. But um, but rather than a kind of a unified entity that makes those decisions, these are really like equivalent to making a vote or buying you know food in the grocery store that leads to prices or inflation or whatever. Um, so I was curious about how widespread that analogy is and 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 how thoroughgoing um, you think it is to to uh, model these these kinds of like brains or artificial neural networks. So it's not as widespread as I think it should be. Um, um, not necessarily the idea that you have like different. So the the idea that there are like different neurons that each vote on what you should do. I mean that that goes back to some um, very classic ideas um, in kind of computational neuroscience, but the the idea of, of linking a metaphor between um, between how neurons in the brain like interact in some complex way that produces some kind of behavior, some decision making, um, drawing a link between that to larger um, like societies uh, which are made of individual elements um, that interact in some complex way to form some kind of collective decision making. And the, the it, it definitely wasn't a throwaway line, by the way. Um, uh, yeah. We we really wanted to um, worked to be able to keep that line in. Uh, in the paper, um, so but that's so that was specifically in like um, I think baboon decision making uh, of like foraging uh, decisions, uh-huh. um, but I think that uh, I think that's really interesting because in neuroscience it's like widely accepted. I think the, the that um, it's a very multi-scale problem. So you have interacting regions, and in within a region you have um, like interacting. Uh, networks and uh, neurons that interact with each other, and then, as I was saying, a single neuron is also like very complex, uh, and so there can be um, computational processes that happen at each of these different scales. Um, and this is one of the things they show, like in Intro to Neuroscience 101. It's like the brain is so fascinating. There's all these different scales across space at which um, at which this uh, decision making can happen, uh, presumably. Um, and then, what I think, um, you know, it's not certainly not my idea, but I think uh, what isn't uh, uh, that isn't thought about enough uh, is that if you extend that a little bit, like one step further to going from the brain to then societies um, or you know groups uh, and how groups make um, make decisions. Um, each of these at each of these stages, you have like a lot of uh, many different co- uh, units that themselves are um, complex, but that also uh, interact in some way to um, generate some kind of output. Yeah, no, it's a really it's a really interesting analogy and. Um, the two things that kind of strike me immediately out of it is one is the amount of the, the lossiness of the information exchange. If you compare, you know, you and me talking using the, you know, pretty an amazing technology of of speaking and then obviously moving it um, over huge distances, but um, but still uh, the amount of information that we can exchange this way is so limited con- to compared to the information that can pass between brain regions. Um, so that strikes me as just interesting. I'm I'm curious what you what consequences that might be and then the other question i had and probably we have to wrap up soon is just um the taskness of it right so you know we kind of understand what the task of uh biological brains are uh, as collective decision making entities right it's reproduction basically um we know what the but that's lots of micro tasks that you break down into we know what the task of uh, alpha zero is right winning go games what's the task you know like it seems like we have a uh, and even um you know if we move from the simplest to the most to the thing least well understood the simplest is the artificial neural network task the more complex is the biological evolutionary task and then what's the task of um you know c- collective decision making for human institutions and then how does that affect the structure of those institutions that seems really interesting but something that um is underexplored. Yeah, that's that is a very interesting question. I mean, I think that maybe that's where the analogy breaks down in the sense that there is no there is no real defined task in the same way because it hasn't been you know in an artificial neural network. It's it's chosen by um, the the specific task is chosen by the programmer in in the brain. It's um, essentially chosen by evolution um, in societies. Um, I, I guess you could make some. Um, some arguments um, uh, about how some societies are, are more likely to be um, are more likely to be uh, uh, effective than others, um, and, and so. That, but I know that there's a, a lot of right, group controversy around, like yeah, group right, selection, right. and so, yeah, yeah. Exactly, there's a whole other debate to have. Um, <laughs> um, but but yeah, so maybe there is like a little bit of a, a phase transition there. 
know. Yeah, fascinating. Well, um, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. It was a really interesting conversation. I, I learned an awful lot. Great. Well, thank you. This was really fun.